Alright, uh, we were just listening to Democracy Now, which is pretty great. Um, in fact, let's go back to that. Into a depression, right? Like through the debt ceiling. Yeah, but, is... but they're certainly willing and probably oh, will try to go out there and talk. Okay, White Household's press briefing. Okay, I'm gonna crash it. Stand by. Who were intent, they were intent on repealing it. Okay. Never mind. It's already been posted. Can't post live. Can't post live. So uh, it's it's like, huh, baby girl? Let's see here. Might have just touched on anything else. Okay, where's where's Mads touch like top clips, man? Come on, man. Lindsey Graham terrified of Trump January sixth charges. Yeah. Trump is limited in his. Jackson compels new witness against Trump. Another case during arraignment. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch ago. Network. As special counsel, Jack Smith arrived in Miami and personally attended the criminal arraignment of Donald Trump in the Southern District of Florida Federal Courthouse, Miami Division. Special counsel Jack Smith's team was still working in Washington, D.C. before a federal grand jury there that is currently investigating Donald Trump's crimes relating to 2020 election interference, wire fraud, Trump's crimes related to uh, the January 6th insurrection. And NBC News caught the Nevada GOP chair Michael McDonald, uh, as well as Jim DeGraffenried, who is the Nevada State Party vice chair, entering into the courthouse and the room where the grand jury is impaneled in Washington, D.C., investigating the other set of crimes that Donald Trump committed. Remember, there are multiple grand juries. Uh, there was a grand jury that was investigating Donald Trump's theft of thousands of government records and obstruction of justice. That resulted in the indictment that is uh, unsealed at the end of last week in the federal courthouse for the Southern District of Florida. Also, special counsel Jack Smith is investigating Donald Trump for criminal conduct relating to election interference, and that is uh, evidence is still being presented on that matter before the grand jury in Washington, D.C. So witnesses continue to enter that grand jury room. The media is there for a variety of cases. There's a number of other January 6th related prosecutions taking place in the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., and the various uh, news networks have learned that if you just kind of stand by and have people kind of stake out that room where the grand jury is, you can see people entering, and here NBC identified Michael McDonald and Jim DeGraffenried, uh, some of the top Republican leaders, MAGA Republicans in the state of Nevada. They testified before that grand jury. What did they testify about? Well, grand jury proceedings are secret, but 
These individuals uh, were fake electors. They signed fraudulent electoral certificates that stated that Donald Trump won the state of Nevada when in fact President Joe Biden and candidate Joe Biden won the state wow. of Nevada. And this was part of a coordinated plan, a broader conspiracy, if you will, um, uh, as part of a plan that was put in place by some of Donald Trump's closest allies who are also under criminal investigation to have these Republican leaders, these MAGA Republican leaders in various states where Donald provide fake electoral certificates on January 6th, believing that Donald Trump could threaten and coerce former Vice President Pence, then Vice President Pence, to basically count the fake electoral uh, certificates and say, Donald Trump won, he's now the emperor of the United States, um, and basically overthrow our democracy, or at the very least to convince Pence to say, wow, I've got these different electoral certificates here, so as a result, I don't know which one to count. We're just going to let these state legislatures make the decision on their own, and then the plan was to have the MAGA Republican-controlled state legislatures overturn the results of their state election and ultimately claim that Donald Trump won when he, in fact, lost free and fair elections as part of the overall plot to destroy our uh, democracy. So I want you to uh, think about this. Donald Trump being criminally arraigned, Miami Federal Courthouse, Southern District of Florida, Special Counsel Jack Smith in the courtroom there. From all the reporting, Special Counsel Jack Smith was looking at Donald Trump. Trump was slouched, hands crossed, was too scared to even look at Special Counsel Jack Smith. At the same time that was taking place, where Donald Trump pled not guilty to 37 separate counts that in the aggregate would lead to potentially a 400-year prison sentence. Special Counsel Jack Smith's team continued their criminal investigation into Donald Trump's 2020 election interference, into Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow a free and fair election, wire fraud, all the other crimes they're investigating for, and witnesses were being put on before that grand jury, because that other criminal investigation is not stopping. We also learned, for example, that within the past 10 or 15 days, um, there were certain witnesses who testified before that grand jury um, about uh, the firing by the Trump administration, particularly their um, personnel office of Christopher Krebs, who led the federal government's election cybersecurity efforts because Krebs stated it was the most secure election in American history. Donald Trump fired Christopher Krebs for making those statements. We also know that the grand jury in Washington, D.C., issued a subpoena for a podcaster uh, and uh, one of Donald Trump's closest allies, Steve Bannon. That happened um, in the past few weeks as well. So a lot of activity going on in that grand jury in Washington, D.C. Um, certainly, we feel here at the Midas Touch Network that Special Counsel Jack Smith is going to criminally indict Donald Trump for Donald Trump's election interference crimes. We believe that will take place around 
end of the summer, but probably more like September, there will be another indictment. We think that case will be uh, venued, we believe, in Washington, D.C. That's where the crimes took place. Um, so Special Counsel Jack Smith continues on that investigation. So you got uh, criminal arraignment, Southern District of Florida Federal Court. You've got witnesses, McDonald uh, and DeGraffenried, Nevada fake electors testifying before the grand jury in uh, Washington, D.C. Then you have um, a federal judge, Southern District of New York Judge Lewis Kaplan, in the E. Jean Carroll case, grants the motion by E. Jean Carroll to amend her defamation lawsuit. Also, this is all happening on Tuesday, June 13th. The federal judge in the Southern District of New York says E. Jean Carroll can amend her complaint, add new allegations based on Donald Trump's recent defamatory statements, including the statements he made at the so-called CNN Town Hall, and E. Jean Carroll is amending that complaint to ask for at least $10 million based on, but probably significantly more based on the new defamatory statements that have been made by Donald Trump. So there was that order handed down in federal court uh, there in Southern District of New York. All of that happening on the same day, which smells like accountability uh, to me. According to NBC, when asked about having to appear um, before the grand jury um, in Washington, D.C., the same day as Trump's arraignment in Miami, McDonald joked, because he thinks this is funny, to the NBC reporter, not on my bucket list, he said, and it had previously been reported by NBC News that uh, McDonald had his cell phone seized um, by the federal authorities as part of its criminal investigation into uh, election interference. Um, so we had that happen, of course, as well today. So um, a lot of developments taking place federal courthouses across the country. You got special counsel Jack Smith tirelessly pursuing these criminal investigations, even when he's in one courthouse in Miami. His team is working overtime in Washington, D.C., continuing to bring witnesses. That other case proceeds in earnest, and I think we can expect an indictment there probably as I said, late summer, probably more like September. We'll keep you posted um, on those developments as well. Um, I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Um, that's one way to support this network. Also, wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. It's free. Hit subscribe on this YouTube channel. Help us get to 1.5 million subscribers and have a fantastic day. Lock him up. Indictment season is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment season t-shirt and v-neck exclusively at store.midastouch.com. It almost sounds like you're describing the Republican Party itself. And, and I, I think that's probably an instructive comparison because what we have seen there is a death spiral. You have moderates driven out. You have open-minded or just brave people willing to speak up driven out. 
and a party that has grown so extreme that it has become a threat to Christian nationalism. Pastor finally exposed this far right threat of Trump and Christian nationalism. Democracy. Do you see that happening to mainstream evangelical churches? I'm Ken Harbaugh. What could possibly go wrong? This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. My guest today is Kristen Cobes Dumay, a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Her book, Jesus and John Wayne, reveals how evangelicals have worked to replace the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism. Kristen, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start with an understanding of terms, and I'm going to ask you to define evangelical Christian, which I know is a trap, because even though the Association of, uh, of Evangelicals has a definition which you cite, you're the first to acknowledge that that does not match reality. So who are we talking about when we say evangelicals? Yeah, so I don't offer a very precise definition. I don't try to define evangelicals as much as I try to describe them. And so you're right, the National Association of Evangelicals will offer a theological description of its um, biblicism, taking the Bible seriously, conversionism, the born-again experience, and crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross of Christ, and then activism. Right, That's kind of their official definition, and I plan to use that. That's what most scholars do. And, and then I started looking at history and realizing that we really needed to understand evangelicalism more as a, as a historical and cultural movement. And um, as a series of networks, and in many ways as a consumer culture. So, to be an evangelical is to attend an evangelical church, absolutely. To listen to Christian music, Christian radio, absolutely. To shop at Christian bookstores, to read Christian publishing. If you participate in this culture, you are shaped by these values, and um, and that's really the evangelicalism that I'm studying as a cultural historian. These days, it seems like that historical slash cultural definition is incomplete, and, and it kind of glosses over the the biblical or scriptural or faith-based definition, but what it's really missing is the political element. Is that a, a fair critique? I mean, politics now seems to define the evangelical movement more than faith itself. Exactly. So, you know, if you're just looking at um, theological doctrines of evangelicalism, you know, by the standard definition, what you'll find is the majority of black Protestants also check those boxes. But the majority of black Protestants, vast majority who can check all those boxes theologically do not identify as evangelical, because it's very clear to them that there's a whole lot more to evangelical than just the theology, and that you can believe all those things, but if you don't hold the same political views, if you you, um, you, know, you, you likely aren't attending the same churches, you likely aren't reading the same books, so why would we insist on grouping those together? And if you look at this uh, historical cultural movement, you can see that politics very much has come to define kind of the boundaries of who is accepted and who is not accepted in these spaces. It seems to me that it's 
done more than define the boundaries. It is it has moved the boundaries. It has shifted the Overton window. We recently had Angela Denker on, and and she made this observation, which I'd love your reaction to because I hadn't heard it before, and it it kind of shook me. She said that when faith conflicts with politics these days, people leave behind their faith. They identify more with their political tribe than their theological tribe. That is very true. And so, um, but they will tell themselves that they are holding their political views because of their faith, because it is God's truth, because God's word dictates it. But they're reading the scriptures, they're approaching their theology, they're forming their theology already with this political cultural lens. So that's absolutely correct. One of the things your book did for me was challenge this idea that the evangelical vote for Trump was an accommodation or a compromise or somehow strategic politically. You argue that's not really the case, and and I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'll just read this section of the book and, and would love your your thoughts on it. Evangelical support for Trump was no aberration, nor was it merely a pragmatic choice. It was rather the culmination of evangelicals' embrace of militant masculinity, an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. Trump isn't a compromise candidate. He's their prophet. Yes, uh, I do make that claim. And I'd started looking into researching the connections between evangelical conceptions of masculinity and militarism and aggression more than 15 years ago. And so I'd kind of been tracking this. And I'd also seen how many of the evangelical men most promoting this uh, kind of aggressive masculine ideal became implicated in scandal in abuse of power, in sexual abuse, and over and over again, I saw this pattern emerge and I saw evangelical communities end up defending perpetrators, defending abusers, and ostracizing victims, and and the ends justifies the means, and this very culture wars mentality of us versus them, zero-sum game, I just saw that over and over again. So when we got to the fall of 2016, particularly October, the release of the Access Hollywood video, and the question that everybody was asking is, how can evangelicals betray their values to vote for a man like Donald? Trump. Right then I knew that was the wrong question. This was not a betrayal. We needed to understand, you know, family values evangelicals always at the heart of family values politics has been the assertion of white patriarchal power. And as soon as you put that at the center, a lot of these other things fall into place. I know the Access Hollywood tape keeps coming up again and again, and and you're right that the question we were asking about evangelical support was the the wrong one and, and i think that was really highlighted at the cnn town hall when we saw his mockery once again of an abuse victim his repeated shaming of someone he abused cheered by that crowd which just is an exclamation point on this idea that he's He's not a pragmatic choice. He's not that uh, they don't rationalize their support for him. They they adore him. Yeah, that, 
you know, I didn't see a lot of the kind of the theory was that they're holding their noses to vote for Donald Trump, right? I was watching very closely and I didn't see a lot of nose holding there. Instead, I, I saw a lot of um, kind of praising this. Uh, he was their ultimate fighting champion, right? He was, he was going to do what needed to be done precisely because he was unrestrained by traditional Christian virtue, like humility and gentleness and, and meekness, or, you know, we could even talk honesty, right? That was, that was precisely what they loved about him. And yes, and we see how he was, um, you know, he confessed to assaulting women and bragged about it and repeatedly. And what I knew from researching this history is that evangelicals too, you know, these family values evangelicals who put so much emphasis on sexual purity and the purity of women over and over again, when evangelical men with power, with when pastors and leaders abuse women, sexually assault women, even young girls over and over again, they end up defending the perpetrators and blaming and shaming the victim. In fact, while uh, the CNN town hall was going on, I was just wrapping up a documentary film shoot with a couple of survivors in uh, evangelicalism, sex abuse survivors who are just poured out these harrowing stories of what it was like not just to be abused by pastors, but also then absolutely blamed and shamed by their own churches. You talk about traditional Christian virtue and its conflict with the, the actual behavior of leaders within the church, but I get the sense that traditional Christian virtue is itself being redefined to maybe mitigate that conflict. When you look at when you look at the the imagery of Christ in in modern evangelical churches today, the way they talk about him as a vengeful warrior, Christ, your words, that's not a traditional depiction of Jesus at all. And I would imagine that reframing is very useful politically. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, evangelicals self-identify first and foremost as Bible-believing Christians. That's, that's how they advertise who they are, core of their identity. And yet, when I look at the last half century or so of conservative white evangelicalism, it's very interesting to see in which cases you know, they hold on to this very rigid sense of plain reading of the scripture and biblical literalism on, on things like uh, sexuality, sexual morality of a certain sort and, uh, and submission of women. But there are a whole lot of other Bible passages about, uh, you know, giving your money to the poor, about welcoming the stranger, about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. And there's all kinds of convoluted reasoning that's done around those passages to say those don't actually apply to us today, right? Now, all, all Christians do this to a certain extent. All religious folks who have, you know, a kind of sacred text are going to be um, kind of interpreting in different ways. But evangelicals tend to be much less aware of the lenses that they're bringing to scriptures and absolutely convinced that there is no interpretation. They are simply receiving God's word and doing it. And so I will say that, um, you know, the title, subtitle of my book, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, that corrupted a, a faith uh, phrase 
is not a historical claim. Right? There's, there's actually no such thing as you know, corrupting a faith historically. There's a bit of a normative claim there. And although the book is a work of history, that is me talking directly to conservative evangelicals for just a moment and saying, you know, you say this about yourselves. Take another look, right? Take another look at the scriptures. Take another look at these values. Take another look at the figure of Jesus Christ, how you've painted him, and then look at that text again and, uh, and you know, see how they match up or see how they don't. I'd love to hear some some stories about the reactions to your to your book i make a point of reading both the five star and the one star reviews and the one star reviews um if they weren't so menacing would i I don't know they'd be kind of funny you get a sense of who is writing those don't you yeah, yeah, I will say that uh, 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 some of the uh, critiques, at least, uh, seems to me kind of prove the point. Uh, yeah, you know when I <laughs> I, I didn't want to I didn't want to say it, but it's like it's angry <laughs> yeah. white dudes with a bunch of guns, right? Really angry. Yes, uh, you know when I wrote this book, I'm a historian. I I'm a historian. I teach at a Christian university. I um, I wrote this book. As I was writing it, I, I actually didn't give a whole lot of thought to how it would be received, except I knew that it had to be absolutely um, um, vetted, well evidenced. I knew that I knew it would be a little controversial, so I, I just absolutely never went beyond my evidence. Right? There's thirty some pages of footnotes uh, or endnotes, and um, you sent it out to you know more, like a dozen other scholars experts to um, assess before it even went into publication, uh, and then it had a thorough legal review, right? So it's very well vetted, and I knew it would need to be because I knew that it was going to be provocative in certain spaces. Uh, I expected some pushback, um, and, and there has been some from exactly who you would expect. What I didn't actually expect, though, I have to say, is how enthusiastically this book would be received in white evangelical spaces. I did not anticipate that. I have heard from so many, because, I mean, the thing is about evangelicalism, and even if you look at, you know, white evangelicalism, you have that kind of notorious 81%, you know, who voted for Donald Trump. That's a lot, and that's a really important part of uh, his base and a very uh, powerful faction of the Republican Party, very significant. Still, that leaves 19% of white evangelicals who did not, right? And then you've got some evangelicals kind of right on the edge, right in the middle, and it's many of those who read the book and said, this is absolutely true. And so, like, within two days of the book's publication, I started getting letters back from readers, and people assume I get a ton of hate mail, and I get almost none. But I have gotten hundreds, by now, probably a couple of thousand of messages, letters uh, from evangelicals themselves saying, this is the story of my life, and thank you for helping me to see is there anything they can do to push back within their communities or are their numbers so small and their their opponents so militant and i'll go back to that word again menacing which is never a word you should be using to describe a christian congregation but you document it angela danker documented it uh you know we've talked to a few people who talk about that feeling of 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 menace. Angela uses the phrase fear-based Christianity. In that environment, if you read a book like 
Jesus and John Wayne and it speaks to you, what do you do? Yeah. I love that you're connecting it to Angela's work because uh, her book, Red State Christians, came out uh, almost a year before Jesus and John Wayne or several months before. And so she had actually reached out to me and we connected um, before the release of both of our books because we saw we were we were describing some of the same um, patterns. And uh, so, yes, (laughs) what can evangelicals do? What I have seen and what I document in the book, too, in the last chapters is a number of white evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals who have taken courageous stands in their churches, in their communities against this um, militancy, against this uh, in terms of politics, uh, you know, anti-democratic um, impulses, um, standing up for victims of abuse. Yes. And those stories are um inspiring, but they are also distressing because what happens time and again is those are the folks who are then pushed out of their organizations, out of their churches. If it's a pastor, they're no longer pastoring that church. If it's a Christian school teacher, Christian college professor, often they're the ones without a job at the end of the day. And so what I see is a lot of resistance and even some change, not a, a lot, but certainly some on the individual level. But if I look at evangelical institutions, it's a less hopeful situation. That's where you see the, the powers are able to, you know, donors, constituents, um, leaders are able to keep people quiet and maintain the status quo. I mean, I was talking with somebody in a Christian media industry um, not long ago, interviewing them for my next book, and they told me something that that just rang absolutely true. And they said, kind of the the, um, um, inside memo here that we get is, you don't have to agree with this, like, right-wing Trump politics and all. You just can't publicly disagree. And I think that very well describes the dynamic. So at the individual level, you can dissent. But if you're trying to challenge the system, that's going to be trouble. It almost sounds like you're describing the Republican Party itself. And I I think that's probably an instructive comparison because what we have seen there is a death spot. You have moderates driven out. You have open-minded or just brave people willing to speak up, driven out, and a party that has grown so extreme that it has become a threat to democracy. Do you see that happening to mainstream evangelical churches? Yeah, you know, I actually use that comparison. Uh, I look at the book, How Democracies Die, right, by um, Ziblatt and Levitsky, and yep. and they talk about the, uh, you know, what happens, because you're going to have wannabe authoritarian leaders um, rise up all, all the time. You do. Historically speaking, you can see this, but then they ask the question, you know, what, what actually makes it possible for one of these wannabe authoritarians to seize power? And the key thing there is that the the political parties do not play their necessary role of gatekeeping. You've got political party leaders who think, you know what, we can use this. We can use this to our advantage. We can harness this to our political advantage. And they see there's like a window in which you can suppress this uh, this kind of reactionary element but if you let things get too far you lose the power to do this and, and this is kind of the the story of of uh, you know reactionary populism and i see you could apply that same um 
metric to white evangelicalism. And one of the things I trace in my book is the complicity of more respectable, moderate evangelicals uh, in this reactionary movement. That many people, when it came to patriarchy, when it came to racism, when it came to some of these really more extreme reactionary elements inside evangelicalism that I trace and this, this you know, militancy, a lot of the moderates would still say, at the end of the day, this is my brother in Christ. So they're going to like kick out anybody who moves more progressive on LGBTQ or kick out anybody who, who rejects kind of this patriarchy, female submission model, and they're no longer welcome in their gospel coalition. But anybody to the right was kind of, you know, tolerated or even platformed and seen as one of us against the left, against, you know, the secular um, threat. And over years, over decades, we see where that has led us, which is now uh, those folks who thought they controlled evangelicalism, the respectable evangelicals, the elites, they are back on their heels and they are uh, realizing that they actually don't have power over the movement. In America today, we cannot talk about the, the patriarchal nature of that movement. We cannot talk about the militancy of today's evangelical church without talking about guns. And it's striking to me how that has become a, a defining feature of evangelicals today. And I'll, I'll get us started by just reading back to you one of your observations about this within the church. Uh, writers on evangelical masculinity have long celebrated the role guns play in forging Christian manhood. From toy guns in childhood to real firearms, gifted in initiation ceremonies, guilty on both counts, played with them as a kid, grew up in a, in a very religious family. My graduation present was a 9mm. Guns are seen to cultivate authentic, God-given masculinity. A 2017 survey revealed that 41% of white evangelicals own guns, a number higher than members of any other faith group. What's going on? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's possible to, to separate. Like you can, I bought my, my son a BB gun for Christmas, right? <laughs> so I'll just put that out there. Um, he, he likes to hunt and he plans to, um, to go into the military, right? So uh, it, there are ways to, it, it's not an all or nothing. But in, in white evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, you do see this, this um, I mean, what, what some evangelicals themselves will call almost an idolatry here of uh, not just, um, you know, thinking that guns are okay for, you know, limited purposes, but really it, it's, it's rooted, it, it's connected to their core identity. And that guns are necessary as um, as a way to fight and as a way to protect your family. Um, but then that is, I mean, realistically, very, very, very few families, particularly white middle class families, are in, um, you know, kind of dire threat where a firearm is going to um, bring them protection, right? But this is the rhetoric then that justifies the... Um, um, this kind of 
if you understand that the world is against you and if you believe that and if you continue to leaders like stoke this fear, right, then you are going to see a threat around every corner. Like that is by design and it's an excellent way for leaders to consolidate power. If you convince people that they are under siege, that they owe you loyalty, they're going to give you money and, um, you know, and you're going to be able to demand sacrifice from them. This is how that system works. In the case of firearms, then, you know, it, it really is um, uh, aggression is linked to this identity of what it is to be protector, even if there is no actual threat that a firearm can protect one from. And that is the framework that supersedes anything such as, you know, do not murder or, um, you know, of turning the other cheek, of loving your enemies, of offering yourself in sacrificial love. Like all of this in, in Christian history, there's a long tradition of pacifism, a tradition of nonviolence. What we see happening is like you can't even surface that. And, and there, there are no there's no space anymore for actual theology, for theological conversations, for people to come together as people of faith and say, what does our scripture teach us? Because the politics trumps everything. And, um, you know, and it's, it's in this case, one that is arguably really against much of Christian history and core teachings of the Christian scriptures, but it doesn't matter. Thanks for watching, everyone. We've got a quick message from our show sponsor. But first, I've got a favor to ask. Growing a show like Burn the Boats depends on you. There was a time when thoughtful interviews with interesting guests could stand on their own. But these days, the algorithm is everything. The recommendations that show up in the feeds of YouTube viewers and podcast listeners depend on the reviews that shows like this get. So please give us a thumbs up, follow this channel, and if you're up for it, please consider clicking on the link to the podcast page and leaving us a five-star review. It makes a huge difference. Thanks. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I know asking for help can be hard, but BetterHelp does more than anyone I can think of to make therapy accessible to anyone. And it's not just about dealing with trauma. Therapy is for everyone. These are stressful times all around. BetterHelp can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries and, generally speaking, how to become the best version of yourself. What you're going through matters. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Boats today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Boats. This is sponsored by Lomi. I have a big family, and that means there's usually a lot of trash left over by the time the week comes to an end. And frankly, I used to feel a bit guilty about this, but then I got a Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter Lomi that turns food scraps to dirt in under four hours. <laughs>
get 15% off your order at fastgrowingtrees.com slash votes. That idolization of firearms has extended to the people who embody gun culture. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of some of these AI-generated images that are coming out of Jesus wielding Uzis. Uh, and <laughs> evangelicals seem not all of them, but the fact that people are making those things and celebrating them is is just is just weird. And then you look at and this is me approaching this from a, a veteran's perspective: the idolization of military people who actually betray every martial virtue, but in doing that have become heroes of the evangelical right. I'm thinking about. Folks like Eddie Gallagher, uh, war criminal, um, murderer, but the evangelical right now platforms him and he speaks from the pulpit. I bet if if Lieutenant Callie had had led the My Lai Massacre today, he'd be on the, the speaking circuit in evangelical yes. churches. Yes. Yeah, when you see that, the popularity of, of somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse, too, in these spaces... Uh, so, so yes, what we have now is an ideology and kind of politics that's um, blended with you know a certain masculine ideal, militancy that has that stands in that that replaces kind of traditional Christian teachings. What you don't hear in these spaces is any meaningful discussion of the virtues. You know, sometimes I'm I'm. I'm asked by evangelicals. Uh, I, I go to a lot of evangelical churches and, and speak at evangelical colleges. And sometimes I'll have a, a white evangelical man, you know, say, okay, well, what should a Christian man do? What should a Christian man be? Because you give us the better Christian masculinity. And yet, as a historian of gender, I can always say, okay, first of all, there are always many masculinities, right? Even the, the question that there is one way to be a Christian man, that all men should fit exactly that mold, right? That, that it, it's just, it's, it's the wrong question. That said, like, if you really want to push me, I'm a historian. I, I don't, uh, you know, usually go there. I don't go there in the book, but I don't know. As a Christian, I would say maybe start with the fruit of the spirit. You know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Not just man, but there's not a lot in the, in the Bible, actually, that's, this is just for the men. This is just for the ladies, right? Very little actually is. But what does it mean to follow Christ? That's put very clearly. And the fruit of the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of, of Christ right in you, you're going to see the evidence in kindness. He wasn't American. He wasn't blonde. He was 
the the child of uh, of migrants. Does that ever come up? Uh, progressives love to throw those those facts. I want something else. I want something else to. MAGA gets uncovered as Trump cult loses it amid federal indictment. MAGA uncovered. Oh, <laughs> uh, this Sunday. Oh, it's Wednesday. That's <clears throat> why is Anthony there? Anthony Davis. Uh, Trump threatens Jack Smith and New Coast with cowers. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Donald Trump went on his social media platform to attack and threaten special counsel Jack Smith. But get this, and here's the thing. When Donald Trump was in the courtroom during the uh, arraignment where Donald Trump pled not guilty, and Jack Smith was essentially six feet away from Donald Trump. Jack Smith was looking at Donald Trump the entire time. But from all the reporting that we've gathered, Donald Trump refused to look at special counsel Jack Smith. No, he uh-huh. wasn't telling Jack Smith or deranged. Coward. Bluster and Donald Trump yep. pretending to be an alpha or weird images of a wolf that he Petty posts tyrant. on the social media platform. At the end of the day, when you confront him with justice, he's always exposed as the coward little traitor that he is. And he was described as slouching over and putting his head down as special counsel Jack Smith stared at him the entire time. And look, Donald Trump's been threatening special counsel Jack Smith's wife. He's been threatening special counsel Jack Smith, spewing these lies and spewing this. and trying to encourage his MAGA cult to do horrible things to Special Counsel Jack Smith and Jack Smith's family. And in person, Special Counsel Jack Smith was not taking it. He was just looking at Trump saying, really? Looking at him, staring him down. Donald Trump did nothing. But here, in Donald Trump's cowardly world and social media, this is what he posted. He goes, a photo of Jack Smith, and he writes, this is the thug overturned consistently and unanimously in big cases that Biden and his corrupt injustice department stuck on me. <laughs> He's a radical right lunatic and Trump hater, as are all his friends and family who probably, quote, planted information in the, quote, boxes given to them. They taint everything that they touch, including our country, which is rapidly going to hell. And it's all projection by Donald Trump because he wants to put our country in a trajectory of, to use his words, going Just to hell. But this is about law and order. And by the way, all of these posts by Donald Trump can and will be used against him at the oh, time of his trial be. where he is now facing, when you add up break. all of the 37 counts against him, about 400 row. years in prison if convicted on it. all of the charges.
charges. And if he's just convicted of an obstruction charge, for example, just one of those counts could be up to 20 years. And notice what he says here, too. He just, he's so delusional and so bizarre that he just spews words. So he calls special counsel Jack Smith a radical right lunatic. And notice with Donald Trump, it's all projection to the point where he's now saying that Jack Smith is a radical right. No, the radical right are people like you and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene. The entire modern day Republican Party has become the radical extremist party. But don't you just love that Donald Trump is such a coward that he posts these. It just shows how scared he is that he posts these things on social media. But then when he's in the court on Tuesday, special counsel Jack Smith there. Jack Smith looking at him. Donald Trump does nothing. Here's Donald Trump's next post. He goes, the grand jury, This is he puts this all in caps. The grand jury was never told about the Presidential Records Act or the Clinton Sox case. Both exonerating. Donald Trump has absolutely no clue what he's talking about. Grand jury deliberations, first and foremost, are secret. So Donald Trump doesn't know what the grand jury was or wasn't told. But again, as all the legal commentators, including myself, said, the Presidential Records Act is about do you classify certain documents as personal? Are certain documents viewed as presidential records, records belonging to the government? It has a process for accounting for records. The Presidential Records Act says the exact opposite. This shouldn't shock you, but the exact opposite of what Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans say, because it defines what are personal records and what records belong to the government. And the records that belong to the government need to be returned. And so something can start as hey, an issue of how Presidential Records Act uh, documents are kept, and then it could become criminal because the statutes, the criminal statutes, Donald Trump was charged under is the Espionage Act, willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy, obstruction of justice, making false statement to federal officials. All of those have nothing to do with the Presidential Records Act. You can't steal records, especially national defense information, and then obstruct justice, setting aside even what the Presidential Records Act says, which is the exact opposite of what Donald Trump says. And here's the thing, too, um, when they talk about the cases, the the Clinton Sox case, they come up with some name for it, and then they just hope that by continuously providing disinformation to their base over and over and over again, as Donald Trump says, I love the uneducated. The uneducated are the best. No, we want people to be educated because people should know what it is that you're talking about. And so what Donald Trump tries to do here is act like the Clinton Sox case, which isn't called that, is some sort of binding precedent. Let me just break this down. First off, what a district court rules is not binding precedent. What the Supreme Court says, what the circuit court in a specific federal court says, that is binding precedent. But what a district court does isn't. This specific case also is not even uh, persuasive authority on any case, but in fact, it stands for the exact, again, opposite proposition of what Donald Trump claims it does. So who do you think brought this so-called Clinton Sox case? The person who Donald Trump gets legal advice from, the guy who wears the really tight shirts named Tom Fitton, um, who I guess fittens his, doesn't fit in his shirts, but you have Tom <laughs> Fitton, who is not a lawyer, who runs a group called Judicial Watch, which before uh, Stephen Miller 
who now files all of these ridiculous lawsuits for far-right extremist causes. Tom Fitton with this group, Judicial Watch, would file it. So this was a lawsuit that Fitton brought in 2010 or 2011, where his group, Judicial Watch, sued the National Archives, requesting an injunction for a federal judge to compel the National Archives to order former President Bill Clinton to turn over notes that Bill Clinton prepared in connection with his autobiography. And what the district court judge, the federal court in Washington, D.C., ruled in that case was that, first and foremost, these documents that issue personal notes in connection with an autobiography or personal audio recordings, and the reason it's called, they call it the Sox case, that's not what the case is actually called, is because it was alleged that these notes or recordings were kept in Bill Clinton's sock drawer. And so the first thing the district court says is the National Archives and everyone says that these are personal records. He's writing a personal autobiography. These are his notes. If Donald Trump actually wrote a personal autobiography instead of utilizing letters that he received from foreign dictators and maniacs, he could claim that his personal notes were personal property. That's not what happened with Donald Trump, who stole government records, classified records, presidential briefings. Those aren't personal. They don't belong to him. They belong to the United States government, and they are the most highly classified documents. In this Bill Clinton case from 2011, the federal court also said, you know, it's 2011. Bill Clinton left office like 10 years ago, 11 years ago. The National Archives... We can't compel. We don't have jurisdiction. You don't have standing, Tom Fitton, for this to demand that this court to compel the National Archives to demand that Bill Clinton turn over personal notes from over a decade ago. What are you talking about? Case dismissed. That's what the Sox case is. So, in fact, the Sox case would be the exact opposite of what Donald Trump claims because personal notes, that may be someone's personal records, as contrasted with government records that don't belong to you, that you can't steal. So why that would have any relevance here, um, it doesn't. It's just more lying and lying over and over again. Here's Trump's next post. He goes, will deranged Jack Smith be looking at the thousands of pages of documents that Biden had in Chinatown then when caught quickly sent up to Boston? What about the 1,850 boxes that Biden is fighting to keep secret? How about Hillary's 33,000 emails that she deleted and acid-watched? Will he be looking at the $5 million bribe that was paid to Biden, but that the Justice Department is trying to hide? Much more coming on that. We are living in a third world country, no borders, rigged election, so it's just feeding the lies to his base. The clear distinction between Biden, former Vice President Pence, Hillary Clinton, whoever is ultimately the intent element, and Donald Trump intended to steal records and basically gave the DOJ and FBI the middle finger and said, mine, 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 these belong to me, and then continuously lied over and over again. That's the crime. If Donald Trump acted just like a normal human being confronted with the situation, who wasn't a malignant, narcissistic, maniac, criminal traitor like he is, who's 
apparently intentionally compromising our national security information. I don't know, by the way, if you've seen this article that just came out, and um, the Israel uh, national defense is very concerned, for example, that some of the documents that Donald Trump was showing to people have compromised their national security. And I think we're going to start hearing from other allies and others in the national security community how much this has actually compromised lives and led to the deaths of people as a result of Donald Trump's conduct. So that is very much different than President Biden or Hillary Clinton. It is a night and day difference. And then, of course, they want to spread this lie over and over and over again that some that it's based on a statement by a foreign asset close to Vladimir Putin who laundered disinformation about President Biden through a paid informant at the FBI that was then laundered to the FBI through Rudy Giuliani in 2020. And they claim there's these recordings and all this information. Well, you haven't produced any of it because it doesn't exist. All your whistleblowers disappear. All the recordings don't exist. It's a constant cycle of Russian-style propaganda, in fact, originating from Russia. It's why this is so infuriating. It's so infuriating on so many levels, but that the Republican Party has been co-opted by our enemy, Vladimir Putin. And they try to masquerade and use terms like patriotism and we love the Constitution. They don't. And there's nothing less patriotic than the way they act and they act like traitors each and every day. Here, Donald Trump just shows... This is the kind of person that the Republicans want to give the nuclear codes to again. So what, he can just show it to people and say things on audio recordings like, isn't this cool? Is it, don't you think I'm better than uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley? That stuff is in the recordings. That's actually in the indictment. And of course, Donald Trump lies and over and over again in these posts as well, acting like these documents were planted or the photographs were altered. These are photographs taken by your own employees, like your co-defendant, Walt Nauta. But here's post which hunt election interference all caps america first and then of course here is the fundraising email to donate money to him so we can grift more off his supporters um, and then try to use that money for his whatever to buy himself airplanes or to uh, hire more lawyers for people in his orbit so that um, they try to further obstruct justice and horrific horrific conduct by this criminal traitor. And if you're supportive of this conduct, you really need to take a look in the mirror because this is heinous, despicable stuff. We don't stand for it here at the Midas Touch Network. I'm Ben Micellis. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast and have an excellent day. Hit subscribe on our YouTube channel. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following. Fucking cowards. Fuck him the fuck up. Trump gets devastating order from another federal court here. I'm going to share that, by the way. Fuck him the fuck up. Said laptops, laptops. <laughs> Lock. Trump. The. The F. Lock. Uh.
Not in the first and the first and the first motherfuckers. Good ass justice department. Chicky, what's wrong, Chicky? Huh? You want over here? Gets uncovered. The parties to get a judge recused from a case. Okay, pull up. Welcome to episode three of MAGA Uncovered. I'm Anthony Davis, and he 